Life Jesus. Welcome in to the Galloway Podcast, episode number 18 on this Monday, August 12th. It is 12 days until the college football season starts. 19 if you're an Alabama or Auburn fan when the Tide and Tigers open their seasons in Atlanta and Dallas, respectively. So that is right around the corner on today's episode of the Galloway Podcast. We've got ESPN and SEC Network college football reporter Cole Kublik coming on to talk about his playing days, talk about his broadcasting career, and also we're going to preview the 2019 season and talk about what to expect and just take a quick look there. So that's coming up in a couple of minutes. Before we get to Cole Kublik, we want to talk about some events happening uh, as of late in the college football world. First off, we're going to start with last week, Auburn University uh, reached out to say that there is a new logo, or did they say there's a new logo? Um, what they called it is a new visual identity system that includes tweaks to the AU to make it more usable in digital forms. I really don't know exactly what they're getting at by that. If you look at the new logo versus the old logo, it's the new one is, is a little bit shorter, a little bit wider. Um, if we're being real and we're looking at the logo and we're just going to shoot straight. We're going to say Auburn didn't get a new logo. They, they made an adjustment, and that made a lot of people confused last week, but it was making some headlines. So Auburn with a new, quote, visual identity system um, that happened last week down on the plane. So Auburn has a new logo, but elsewhere in college football, getting to the field. We're going to look at Alabama, turn our attention to Tuscaloosa. Trey Sanders is out indefinitely with a foot injury, and so we're going to see who is really going to fill his role this year. Uh, Nick Saban said Jerome Ford played really well in Saturday's scrimmage, and Keelan Robinson is a guy to look out for the Crimson Tide to help carry the load. Of course, you've got B-Rob and Najee Harris for the Crimson Tide. Alabama, the depth at running back is and has been uh, very deep for a while, and so there's not a whole lot of concern. Trey Sanders tweeted out, of course, last year, shortly after committing to Alabama, that he was going to win the Heisman. That will have to be put on hold one more year. Elsewhere in Tuscaloosa, on the other side of the ball, uh, linebacker Josh McMillan has a right knee injury and is out indefinitely. So we're going to look at the Will linebacker, and we're going to see that uh, Ale Caho, Shane Lee, Markel Benton, we're going to see who's going to step up there on the defensive side of the ball to fill in Josh McMillan's linebacker spot for the Crimson Tide. I posted a poll the other day on Twitter asking who is who do we think is better, who do y'all think is better, Sam Ellinger or uh, Jalen Hurts? And granted, because there's a lot of Alabama faithful, a lot of people said Jalen Hurts, but I'm really interested to see the season that uh, Ellinger is going to have at Texas. That's going to be interesting to look at. Also, talking about the quarterback position, Kelly Bryant, the new Missouri Tiger quarterback, did not get a championship ring from Coach Dabo Sweeney and the Clemson Tigers. Uh, a lot of people know about this. A lot of people have heard about it. And uh, I just wanted to give a, a quick two cents on it. I think it is completely just uh, – I don't think it would have been fair for him to get a ring because he only played in four games. And obviously with that new transfer rule, he said, I'm out after four. And so – 
I think it's perfectly fair. You know, you don't finish the season, you're not on the team the whole season, you don't deserve a ring. And so Coach Dabo Sweeney is making the right call there. And, and to be honest, I think uh, Kelly Bryant handled it really well. I think he went to the media and, and, and made a comment about it. Um, and he didn't sound bitter, and so that situation really settled itself out. But Kelly Bryant and Dabo Sweeney, obviously in two different places now, still both Tigers, but Kelly Bryant did not get a national championship ring from last year's Clemson team. Uh, Mike Loxley, the head coach at the University of Maryland, shut down Josh Gaddis, his former co-offensive coordinator for the Crimson Tide. We all know Mike Loxley really was kind of the, the head honcho there. Um, but Josh Gaddis was right there in his ear. They're, they went back and forth a little bit, and uh, Mike Loxley really kind of shut down the situation, and Josh Gaddis and some comments that they made, Mike Loxley really cited that there's a difference between suggestions and decisions. Loxley said Gaddis made lots of suggestions, but he himself, Loxley, was the ultimate decision uh, maker, and so he used Gaddis' suggestions to make his decisions, um, but Loxley kind of was the head honcho it seems like all that has really simmered down and we can kind of just get to football because that's what Coach Loxley and Coach Gaddis are focused on and kind of all the talk between those two is behind them. And so we will get to more talk here with Cole Kublick here on the Galloway Podcast. We're going to kick that off and I uh, really appreciate Cole taking his time to come in on this podcast and talk about his life and his football journey from becoming a high school player to a SEC offensive lineman at Auburn and then going to work for ESPN now and the SEC Network and what he does every day um, and kind of how he got to where he is. So this was a great conversation. really appreciate him taking the time to come and talk and also share some broadcasting advice as well. He's had a really interesting career, and so I hope you all really enjoy this. You can follow this podcast You can subscribe on SoundCloud and Spotify, the Galloway Podcast, so please do that. Follow Cole on Twitter, as I'm sure you already do, at Cole Kublik. You can follow me at WM underscore Galloway. And let me know any feedback you have on this podcast. I tried to incorporate a lot of questions from Twitter followers, and so that's where a lot of this conversation was generated from. But really hope you guys enjoy this. Thanks again to Cole. Thank you for listening, and please tweet me with any feedback you have for this podcast and suggestions for future episodes. So here we go, Cole Kublik on the Galloway Podcast. Joining the Galloway Podcast now is former Auburn offensive lineman. He's currently an SEC Network and ESPN College football analyst and a co-host of Three Man Front with Landrum Roberts and Aaron Suttles on Jocks 94.5. Cole Kublik joining the podcast. Cole, thank you for coming on today. Hey, man, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it is football season. We are 19 days away from Alabama and Auburn football, 12 days away from the official college football season. There's a lot to discuss when it comes to the world of college football. But before we get to that, I kind of want to talk about your career um, and where you started and kind of how um, you got to where you are today. So you're a Birmingham native. You played at Homewood, and you kind of got to Auburn. When you look back on your playing days at Homewood and Auburn, what really stands out to you? And do you have a favorite memory? I know you're part of that 1995 uh, high school football state champion team that beat Blunt 17 to 12. But when you look at high school and college, what were your favorite memories? Oh boy! Uh, I mean, I, there was a, a we had a playoff run my junior year that was fairly memorable. We, we got to play John Carroll again for the second time that season, and that was 
sort of a rivalry game for us. Got to beat them, went to Scottsboro and won that game. Uh, Russellville came down. I want to say they were the, the number one ranked team in the state. Got to play them at home, won that football game, and then went to Greenville and lost. So obviously it's not overly memorable to lose a state championship game, but you know, I was injured my senior year, so I didn't play as much and didn't play in our playoff run. So for me, it, it was tough for that to be extremely memorable because uh, obviously it's it's tough not being out there on the field. I think that that's you know the unfortunate part of both careers, be it high school or college, is thinking about how much time I missed because of injury. I just there's I think there's always going to be regret. There wasn't anything I could do about it, but you just wish you could go back and say man, how could I have prevented that injury? Or if that injury didn't happen, do the other two or three not happen? So that's, unfortunately, that's going to be, I've had 13 surgeries, so it's going to be a part of, of my career. And I think if there's, you know, if I had that DeLorean, I could go back in time and maybe prevent one of the first ones that was, you know, a, a bit of a, uh, I guess, a, a bit of a tumbling block for some of the other ones that came. I would, I would try to get rid of that, but it is what it is now. Talk about your transition uh, to Auburn, kind of your recruitment period, and then what it was like early on at Auburn and throughout your career. Yeah, that was a, another weird one, too. Um, I, I, I did not have an ACL my entire junior year, senior year. I tore it my freshman year in high school. And was too young to have it repaired. Got through my junior year with no trouble, so I figured I was okay. And then you had the growth spurt, you get bigger, stronger, faster. All of a sudden, the knee can't hold up. So... Um, I went through, got hurt in the first game my senior year, and then had the knee drained, had it scoped, and came back after, I think, played the sixth game of the year and had another pivot shift, which is essentially due to not having an ACL. And then doctors basically said, listen, you got to have this thing repaired or you're not going to play anymore. And so at that point in time, Tennessee, Florida, Miami, a lot of schools just kind of dropped off. And it, it came down sort of Alabama, t- Tennessee hung in there a little bit longer, but it was Alabama, Tennessee, and, and Auburn. And then they sort of slowly went away. And thankfully, Terry Bowden gave me the opportunity to play and, and have a scholarship for me. Uh, getting down to Auburn was weird because I didn't really, I didn't play a down of offense in high school. And I knew I was going to go to the offensive line and play. And I had tried to work on some of the fundamentals and techniques. But if you've never done it and never really practiced it, like I was the defensive blocking dummy in high school like that's what I did when we went to the offensive line period I always lined up on defense to work against our guys so I didn't really I mean my head was spinning when it came to technique fundamentals recognition of a front where the Mike linebacker was how to block different fronts blocking schemes I mean it was all foreign and then on top of that I go to center which makes it even more difficult because then you got to learn how to snap a football so that red shirt year was very valuable for me. I learned a lot of lessons. I essentially learned how to play offensive line. I learned how to work next to other guys. I learned a lot about defense and what different looks were going to be and how to recognize different things. So you don't hear very often in today's football how valuable a red shirt year can be. But for me personally, it, it, it made a huge difference. Well, having that defensive experience too, you can think as a defensive lineman. And when you're playing offensive line, you can kind of – you would know how a defensive player would want to think. Uh, talking with Cole Kublik here on the Galloway Podcast, did you have a favorite coach you played for at Auburn? Because Terry Bell was there, Bill Oliver was there, Tom Tuckerville was there. <laughs> played, played for, not position-wise, but as far as head coach, I'll, I, listen, I'll always be indebted to Terry Bowden for giving me a scholarship. He stuck by me when a lot of other people wouldn't. Um, I love playing for Bill Oliver. Bill Oliver was the epitome of a player's coach. He understood how to practice. He understood how to conserve energy. 
I think the biggest thing that he did that a lot of other guys that want to get into coaching should have been a part of was the efficiency in practice. And he understood how to not waste time, how to not do things just to do things because you felt like you'd always done it or felt like you had to because somebody else was. Everything he did was to prepare you to play in the game and to get ready to play in the game. And some of that meant doing less. And, you know, it, it might be easy to hear that and say, well, he just liked Bill Oliver because they didn't practice as long. That's part of it. But it was intelligent practice as well. And some of that wasn't there under Bowden or Tuberville. Now, Tuberville was different because, you know, he was coming in trying to sort of make his name and make his mark, run guys off, build a different culture. So we went through a different period of growth with him and his staff. But that was, I mean, I tell people all the time, we talk to Rob Pater, Ben Leard, or Alex Lincoln, or Kendall Simmons, I'll tell you the same thing. I mean, those first two years under Tuberville, they, that took years off of our lives, legitimately. It was, it was that hard. And, you know, he kind of, I understand it now, I get it now, but, boy, it was rough to go through. Uh, you're talking marathon practices, 13 straight two-a-days, full pads the first day of two-a-days, spring practices that would go until 8, 39 o'clock at night. I mean, it was, it was rough. And that's not, that's not to mention the conditioning part that Kevin Yoxel brought that ran off eight or nine guys the first day of winter conditioning. So it was, it was different, and it was difficult, but it was necessary at the time. So I respect Tommy, and Tommy ended up being a player's coach. He, he allowed the seniors to have a voice on what he called their team. You know, he understood how to, how to let people lead, when to put people in positions of leadership. And, you know, he was – Tommy was – I mean, he won a lot of games for a reason. He was a good coach, and I have a lot of respect for all three of them. And so there's a lot you can take away, I mean, from learning from three different guys and one giving you an opportunity to one uh, giving you – you could say Coach Tuberville gave you an opportunity as well, being a senior, because you have that experience of being in the program. He steps into what you would might want to consider as a player in college, your program, but really he's in charge. So there's a lot you can take away. What would be your biggest takeaway uh, from all three? Man, uh, you know, from Bill Oliver, it would be efficiency. Kind of like I said, and just – do the things that are necessary, but don't do things just to do things. It sounds good in theory to go out there and just do more. Try harder, do more, practice more, do more drills. Like In theory, that's great, but when you're talking about managing a Division One football team, it's not always realistic. It's not always applicable that way. Um, from Tommy, uh, I think it would just be understanding – how to allow people to lead and how to put people in positions to lead. Because there were times when he felt he had to do it. There were times where he would come talk to me or he would go talk to Ben Leard or he would go talk to Heath Evans and say, you need to lead this. You need to do that. And giving his seniors a voice, you know, kind of, he, I think he did a better job of orchestrating the team. Like he was kind of, you know, he was kind of the Mozart of the team, sort of. He knew who to go to, how to go to them, and how to work it. And he sort of let a lot more things play out than the other guys did. And, you know, with, with Terry, I think it was just, you know, an understanding how to find talent and how to get the ball to the right people and how to do things that you're – like, we couldn't run the ball my sophomore year. But we went to the SEC championship game. You know, I think he knew early on we got something special in Damian Craig. We got a really good group of receivers. Our offensive line can pass protect better than we can, can run protect. And, you know, what's, what's play to our strengths, so to speak. So I think, you know, obviously Bill Oliver was defensive-minded. Tuberville was a little more defensive-minded. Terry was 
offensive minded and a brilliant offensive mind, and especially when he had Tommy Bowden there and Jimbo Fisher on that staff. I mean, you had a lot of he had a lot of offensive firepower, a lot of offensive brain power on that staff. So those would probably be my three takeaways. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking with Cole Cube, the Callaway Podcast, co-host of Three Man Front on Jocks 94.5 and SEC Network, and ESPN College Football Analyst. Cole, you joined ESPN and the family of networks in 2011, and you've been an analyst for them. You're now working with the SEC Network as a kind of combined uh, branch of the family of networks there. But how have you seen the game change from your playing days to now being an analyst? What is really, uh, how has the game progressed, and what has changed uh, the most, do you think? Uh, I think what's changed the most is just the philosophy of how to manage your offense. I mean, most teams do not place an emphasis on being a ball control team and winning with defense and being able to possess the football longer. Um, offenses have gotten more athletic. Defenses have gotten more athletic. It, I think the game overall has become more versatile. There are more guys who are asked to do more things, whether that's a tight end who needs to be able to block, needs to be able to flex out, needs to be able to outrun a linebacker, an H-back that needs to be able to run the ball, catch the ball, block, an outside linebacker that needs to work in coverage that can come play the run, a safety that can take on an offensive lineman and also cover in the slot, you know, corners who can play nickel, dime, man, zone, off, blitz. I mean, it's there are more players that are less specialized, maybe, than ever. Um, I mean, even receivers, you see, you got to play inside, outside. you got to be able to catch short passes, turn them into explosive plays, break tackles, you know, run past guys, run good routes, block. So I, and I think some of that has to do with the pace and the tempo of the game. Some of that has to do with the mentality of how much you feel you have to score. It has to do with what kind of things you have to defend. So those, those are sort of the main changes I've seen. It's taken away a little bit of the physicality. I mean, overall, I think offensive line plays down. Um, I think that has more to do with the emphasis being placed on physical practices. You can only go in pads. You can only go full speed so much these days. And as much as I dreaded two-a-days and hated going Oklahoma and middle drill and live ones versus ones team periods, that, that stuff's valuable when you're conditioning your body to play a season of football. A lot of guys don't get that anymore. And so I tell people all the time, the only way to get better playing offensive line is to do it full speed against somebody who's trying to make you look bad. You, we can go, I can take you out there and run T-board left, T-board right. We can go through the shoots. We can push the sled. We can work pass sets. It's not going to make you good offensive line. you got to do it against somebody who's trying to beat you up. And when you can only go a handful of spring practices in full pads, a handful of fall practices in full pads, and you got to have days off and you're not doing two in one day, is your body really acclimated for what that season is going to be? I think that's been a cause for the rise in injuries. I think not only sports specialization, but position specialization within sports specialization is also causing more injuries. So you have guys now that they're not only just a football player, they're not only just a basketball player or just a baseball player, but they're just a shortstop or they're right. just a receiver or they're just a DB or they're just a point guard. And I think your body sometimes doesn't know how to react when it gets out of that space. So if a receiver has to go make a tackle on an interception, or if there's a run play and he has to go make a block, or he gets blocked on an interception, he's, his body's not acclimated to making some of those physical movements. And I think that's sometimes why you see more injuries than you do in the past. So specialization has been a big change. 
pace and tempo, big change, lack of physicality is something that I've seen changed, and then just overall mindset and philosophy. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's score more, win more. I mean, that's, that's the philosophy for a lot of teams. And is some of that strategic in being able to work around areas that you might not be able to recruit as well? Yeah, maybe. But uh, it's also forced, I think, a lack of progression in certain areas of the game overall. When you think about that old school, just hard-nosed football and like the conditioning you were talking about, who do you see specifically in the SEC that kind of does that more so than others? Everyone is adapted to playing today's game in 2019, but who do you see in the SEC that plays the hard-nosed, old-school football, trains, traditional ways? Um, and not, not, just, not, not to not say they teams, haven't adapted. But yeah, not many teams really play that way. I mean, a lot of t- some teams have guys who can be those guys, but what you're describing is a mindset. What you're describing is an overall philosophy, and I don't know if many teams really have that. Now, who conditions that way and prepares that way? Alabama obviously does. Georgia does. Uh, I think Dan, Dan Mullen at Florida conditions much, in a much more difficult manner than people believe that he does. Um, but it's you know if you're a team that's focused, here's just one part of one example of it. When you're a team that focuses on pace and tempo and going fast, you think about what inherently your philosophy is at the end of every play. It's not to inflict punishment on your opponent. It's not to play through the whistle or finish that play. It's to get back and get lined up and run the next play. So that's inherently taking away from what players and teams and size of the ball and position groups have been conditioned to be for 100 years. And so when you when you take that part away, I think there's a trickle-down effect as to why a lot of other people can't be that or play that way or have that mindset because your philosophy has shifted. And you have to place your focus on different areas. And going back to what we talked about earlier, you only have so much practice time. So if we got to work pace and tempo and going fast and getting on the ball and snapping the ball and getting our signals in, well, how many tackling drills are we doing? How many blocking drills are we doing past the whistle? Those things are what begins to suffer from that. So there's just there are teams that still do it and still try to instill it, but you know it's just with what you're allowed to do, it's difficult to be that kind of a team in today's day and age. The limitations probably because a lot of the research and what people have figured out about you know college athletes' sure. bodies and what they're able to do and how to um, get maximum effort, you know, with Certain amount of input, uh, it's it's changed a lot of the game. No, you got guys wearing GPS packs in every practice, and it doesn't just matter measure how many miles they run; it measures how much slower they are comparative to other days at certain times in practice. It measures the amount of impact that they give and receive in every single practice. So, I mean, you you got trainers who legitimately at some schools can get a warning on a certain guy digitally, and they'll step in and say. We're removing him from the rest of this practice. Like, I mean, I, I played for guys that would have laughed at that. Like, that's that didn't happen. That's uncommon. So, and, that, and that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing because player safety is and should be very important. Um, but I just I, I think that there there has to be some common sense in people understanding that it's more dangerous not to have your body conditioned for what's actually going to happen on Saturdays. We can say, hey, let's be nice to these guys and let's not make them practice on back-to-back days and let's not let them have two practices in one day. But 
There's also a portion, and again, I'm, I'm fine with those things, but when it comes to hitting and when it comes to going full speed in practice and doing those things against someone else that I mentioned, on a regular enough basis to be prepared for what you're going to do, that has value. That's important because player safety is real and something that we should all talk about and should continue to be pushed to the forefront of what matters in this game. But at the same time, it's hard to have real player safety when the majority of players' bodies is not conditioned to do what we're going to ask it to do, especially in weeks 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. So it's, it's a very fine line. It's a very delicate tug of war as to what can we do, what should we do, what do we want to do, and how should we do it. This season, there's an additional bye week uh, in the schedule, and really interested to see how that pans out for a lot of teams. Um, particularly when I think of Alabama, they've got it before Texas A&M, they've got it before LSU, so they're trying to get this, this maximum performance out of their guys, and, and this year with the additional bye week, we'll see how uh, that goes. We're talking with Cole Kublick here on the Galloway Podcast. Cole, you joined ESPN in 2011. Currently, you live in Birmingham. Co-host three-man front with Aaron Suttles and Landon Roberts, and on the weekends in the fall, and also throughout the year, you're working for um, ESPN, being college football reporter. Kind of walk us through that journey from 2011 joining ESPN to kind of where you are now, calling these Saturday night games and Thursday night games as well. I'm gonna look at the clock and see how much time you have here, because I mean this could be a lengthy discussion. Okay. <laughs> my my journey is very different than anybody else that I've ever really talked to uh, when it comes to getting into this business. It's something that I always knew I wanted to do, but there were multiple times when I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do it for different reasons. Um, You know, my first job, I guess you would say, in radio, and I tell people that I I haven't worked in six or seven years. I don't really consider this work. But my first gig that I was paid for in media was actually in 2001 the year after I finished playing college football. I, I did a radio show in North Alabama on a station, Rocket 95.1, that was carrying Auburn football. My father had a relationship with the guy that owned a cluster of stations. That was one of them. His name was Steve Shelton. I literally stopped in his office one day. I was a drug rep driving a silver Pontiac Grand Prix in a suit, walked in, said, hey, man, you carry Auburn football? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, my quarterback lives in Decatur, which is 20 minutes away. I live here. Nobody knows that team better than we do. Why don't you let us do a pre-pregame show before Rod and Stan and all those guys right. come on? And we know the team better than them. He said, and this is for anybody that's listening that wants to get into radio, I learned the most important lesson in radio that there ever is and ever will be right then and there. He said, if you can sell it, you can have it. Being, if you can have dollars attached to it, we will put you on the air, which 99.9% of the time is going to be reality in terrestrial radio in any space in any part of the country and so we sold it we got a couple ads on it a couple of sponsors for it and we did it and I remember the first day I did it I got in my car drove down South Lake South Memorial Parkway and I called my mom and I said mom that's where I belong that's where I need to be I need to be there talking about football I need to be sharing my experiences sharing what I think and she said well that's cool that's great she said but don't quit your day job because you need to figure out how to sustain a living doing that before you just go try to do it. That also was a great lesson because a lot of people, I think, have gotten to the point where they clamor so hard to be in this field that they're willing to almost do too much for free or do too much for a low price. And that has devalued a lot of people in this industry. Now, 
there are going to be things, if you want to get into this, that you're going to have to do for free. There are things you're going to have to go do on your own. There are things that you're going to do that you're not going to get paid for. You're not going to get paid enough for. There are times you're going to have to take those lumps in this business and in most businesses, to be honest with you, but especially in this one. But it's become diluted with people that are essentially, hey, if you put me on the air, I'll do anything you want. And I don't, I don't need anything for it. And that takes away from a lot of the talent that a lot of people have. And, I mean, that's over a very broad spectrum. Um, so we did that for a couple years. And somebody down in Auburn, a guy named John Cole, who was at that point in time running the Auburn Network, he said, when Stan White went from doing CSS games over to jumping on the radio to do color, he said, hey, do you want to do our spring game for CSS? I said, yeah, I'd love to. Did that with Andy Bertram, who's pretty cool. Today was just announced Auburn's right. play-by-play voice. He and I did that game, and then he and I would do a slew of other CSS games. And this was right before the SEC Network came in, so it was right before ESPN took over the rights to most SEC games. And I think in 2003, 2004, we did like six or eight games each one of those years, so we did a decent number of games. And I would go do a pay-per-view game, and we'd be on the main broadcast for that. And then when the SEC Network came in and ESPN took over this inventory of games, they didn't really need me on ESPN3 anymore because I had been doing – well, first came a call, a call from a guy at CSS that asked me if I wanted to do Sunbelt games. And since ESPN had taken over a lot of that inventory, it was essentially you had the one pay-per-view game or two pay-per-view games or I had a full season of Sunbelt. Well, I wanted the reps, and I knew I needed the reps. So I was like, I want to go do the Sunbelt games. There were some people at Auburn that were mad about that. Didn't understand why I would do that. But I'm, that's where the former player came in, and I knew 14 or 12 was greater than 2 right. to get to where I wanted yeah, to go. Absolutely. And so, I mean, I worked with Joe Davis, who's doing Fox, college football, NFL, Major League Baseball, does Dodgers radio. I worked with Joe Block, who does Pirates radio and TV now. I worked with Tom Doerr, who called three Bulls championships on the radio in the NBA, played basketball in Missouri. So I got to experience what some quality broadcasters were like. I got to go to some very different places in the league. I developed great relationships with a lot of coaches. I mean, that's where I met Gus Malzahn. That's where I met Hugh Freeze. Um, so a lot of guys that were sort of moving up the ladder, I got a chance to be around them, like Dan McCarney at North Texas. So it was a very valuable experience for me, but that was – for three years, and then the fourth year became the SEC Network, and there wasn't anything really for me. And thankfully, uh, a guy named Steve Ackles and John Vasallo kind of saw something in me and went and found a couple of games to give me. And I think my because my first year when the SEC Network was around, I only did two games. And I remember my wife going into the next fall saying, "Hey, if you don't find if we don't find more games, you need to find a new career because." I can't have this miserable husband home with me on the weekends. I can't have it. You're just not a fun person when there's football on in your home. Because she knew I wanted to be working. Right. And so then the next year is when I kind of developed that relationship with Steve and a couple other people. And he got me, I think, 10 games that first year. I did work with Mike Cousins most of that year. And I did, I did like a Jacob Eason high school game at Lake Stevens. We did a Calvary Baptist game, high school game in Louisiana. It was supposed to be Shea Patterson, but he had already left to go to IMG. We did like Utah State, Wyoming. We did SMU and Memphis. It was the, actually the game at halftime where it was announced that Memphis's coach, that uh, Justin Fuente, was going to Virginia Tech. And so 
the next year it went to like 15 games and then I got put on a regular crew and it went to 20 games and it's been over 20 the last few years. So, and then I got put on the primetime crew with Jordan and Tom. This will be our third year doing that. So it's been this steady incline and, and radio was also a part of that. You know, I started out on this uh, podunk startup sports talk station in Huntsville and I did seven to 10. I did six to 10 I did 12 to 2, I did 2 to 5, I mean, I did a lot of different shifts there with multiple different people, and then I had to walk away, um, essentially just because of some financial issues, and they quit paying me, and I had to kind of step away from that, and went to go sell packaging, and then tried insurance, and I was terrible at both, and hated both, I wasn't passionate about either one of them, and got a call from a station called WUMP in Huntsville and they put me back on in the mornings with Arky Shea and that went for about three and a half years and then that led to, because that's a cumulus station which Jocks right. is, so that's under the same umbrella and then that led to me coming down to Jocks here which is kind of my dream job because I've, I mean I listened to Jocks growing up, like driving mm-hmm. down the South Lakeshore to Homewood High School, I would have sports talk radio in my car. Right. And driving home to Mason DeVille after school, same thing, I'd be listening to Jocks. So, it's the place that I've always wanted to be and thought I needed to be. And uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's, it's, it's been incredible. But that, that's just kind of, I mean, that's a very quick synopsis of my journey. There were a lot more, you know, ups and downs and bumps in the road, of course, since that happened. But the cool thing about this industry is there are more people, and I worked in medical sales and pharmaceutical sales, and I did insurance and I did packaging sales, this industry and me talking to other people in other industries too, there are more people who are willing to help you who do not expect anything in return than any other industry that I know of. And I think that's because everybody knows that you kind of kind of have some help somewhere. Like mm-hmm. Nobody just gets there. It's, like, about, it's about the hands you shake. Right? Yeah, and there's a couple of people who will come out of the NFL or big-time college players, and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll end up in a seat, and you know, some deserve it. Some people think that they don't, but... You know that that's life. Honestly, I mean, it's things are going to happen like that. Right. Um, you know, I'm I'm big with my two kids. Life ain't fair. Like things are going to happen that you don't understand. But how do you navigate around those things and continue to help better yourself? That that to me was the key and primary focus. But the people who have helped me, you know, I mentioned Steve Ackles, like a buddy of mine, Bo Kerr, who went to Auburn with me, who kind of helped me study, and we had a lot of classes together. He's now the associate AD at Sanford. Like he was working for ESPN Plus. And he was sending me names of people like, you got to call Mike Moore. you got to call John LaSalle. You need to know who Stephanie Drewley is. Like, he would just randomly do that because he knew this was my dream, but he also knew I needed to make some of those connections if it was ever going to be a reality. So somebody like him, somebody like Bo Kerr, like, I'll probably never get here. And I didn't ask him to do those things. Right. He just knew, hey, I know these people. He needs to know these people. I'm going to try to put two and two together. Mm-hmm. Sure. And it's the same thing with me that I spit somebody's name out to a radio station or, you know, I, I get a girl that wants to shadow me at an Arkansas game and I give her name to David Basil, who does radio there. And Basil gives her to a local TV station and she gets a job six months later. So it's like that's the, the web that sort of is weaved within this profession. And that's been the cool part about it. That really in my family, especially my wife, have just been like my support system. Like you, you hear people talk about. Their family's a team. Their home is a team. Like, my household is a legitimate team. Like, my wife is my legitimate teammate. So, you know, without her being the primary breadwinner early on in our relationship to supporting me, to pushing me, to knowing 
when to tell me to slow down or what not to do. Like she has been there. She's kind of been like my offensive coordinator the whole time. So it's been it's yeah. been really cool. But it's been a long journey, man. And the, and the weird thing about me is like I don't feel like I'm even close to where I want to be. Um, I'm very much the next goal. Once things the there, thing. I'm like, yeah, the, I, w- I want to accomplish the next thing on my list yeah. of things to accomplish. So by no means do I feel complacent or like I'm where I, where I want to be the rest of my life or that I've accomplished all these great things. Like I still feel like I have a long way to go as far as where I want to be as a broadcaster. We're talking with Cole Kubler here on the Galloway podcast. And before we wrap things up, of course we need to talk football. So spitfire some questions real sure. quickly. Um, just got a couple here. Biggest sleeper in the SEC? Missouri. Missouri? Missouri, has, Missouri has three offensive linemen that I believe are top five offensive linemen in the league at their positions. Tristan Colon-Castillo at center, Trevor Wallace-Sims at guard, Yasir Duran at tackle, I think are all exceptional players, all have a chance to be NFL guys. You put them with a thousand-yard rusher like Larry Roundtree and a tight end like Albert O, and a receiver like Jalen Knox, now with Kelly Bryant being able to bring – a little bit of the run dynamic, which defenses are going to have to defend, and it's going to be something that sort of adds a new dimension to what they do. In hearing from Drew Locke last year, conceptually how much football Derek Dooley taught him and how they sort of worked that offense around his strengths, I don't think Kelly Bryant needs to take this giant leap. Like Some people think he needs to come in and be – you know, Cam Newton or RG3 to, for them to be successful. He's he, Kelly Bryant. He has. He's a good player, and he was a good player at Clemson. I mean, the guy won an ACC championship game. The guy started a college football playoff game. If he takes a small step, mainly with his accuracy, I think Missouri's offense can be really good. They got a big-time leader in Kel Garrett on defense. They like their D-line a lot. Most people don't know any of the names because they haven't played a ton and made a ton of plays, but – They've got a good group there, and if you can get a good defensive line and some offensive firepower, you're going to win games in this league. And then I think, too, you think about the fact that they have not lost a single player to the transfer portal. I mean, that, that tells you kind of what the culture is that Barry Odom right. is building, and that's going to be that's big in the locker room. If they get the bowl win back, I think people really jump on that bandwagon. You get, after media days, you started seeing more and more people kind of say, oh, I think Missouri, this and that. The schedule lines up perfectly for them. They get Georgia the first week in November. They get Florida at home November 16th. They've waxed Florida the last two years. Nobody talks about that. But to get them in Como, middle of November, a bunch of Florida kids, it's a perfect place to get them. And obviously their non-conference Power 5 opponent is West Virginia, who has Neil Brown, a new head coach. They lose Will Greer and David Sills and all those receivers. And then they're at Wyoming week one. They get South Carolina early in the season, which would be a tough test. But, I mean, their draw from the West is Ole Miss and Arkansas. Yeah, that's about as good as it gets. So the schedule lines up perfectly for Missouri. So Missouri is your sleeper in the SEC. Biggest threat to Alabama? Today, I would tell you, man, this is, a, this is such a coin flip for me between Auburn and LSU. There are things about A&M that I can convince myself it's them, but the schedule won't allow me to believe that they're going to really be in a position to actually win the division. Do I think A&M could sneak up and beat Alabama? Yeah, I do. I think A&M is going to get one of those big three monsters on their schedule. A&M, Alabama, Clemson. I think they will get one of those games this year. Um, right now, I'd probably say <laughs> it's Auburn. It's Auburn LSU coin flip. I mean, I'll probably say LSU just because quarterback, but I think Auburn's overall defense may be a little bit better just because of the front. LSU's got the best secondary in college football, but they have a few more holes on their offensive line. Um, I like Joe Burrow. I think he's tough. I think he's a competitor. 
if, if you're going to beat Alabama, you got to rush the passer, you got to cover. And if Caleb on Chase Song's an elite pass rusher like we think he can be, Rashard Lawrence inside, Brendan Fajoko's back, they may be good enough up front. Michael Divinity going to linebacker is going to help. But I think Auburn's got four or five guys that are going to be NFL players on their defensive line. And then I think you got a really good secondary. Not as good as LSU, but a really good secondary. They have a better offensive line right now. That could be that could easily change in three weeks into the season. But this the whole quarterback thing with Auburn, I'm just okay. it's, it's hard to get behind a team who you don't know who their quarterback is and say they're going to unseat Alabama as SEC West champions. So today I'd lean LSU. Okay. So LSU would be your biggest threat to Alabama. Who is your quarterback for the Gus Malzahn? I don't, I don't believe there's much separation right now at all. In the, in a, I've seen them both. I've talked to them both. I've been around them. And the only thing that I keep coming back to is, all right, neither one of these guys have a lot of experience. So what, what can counter a lack of experience? Probably intangibles. Because I think if you want to weigh their skill sets, if you want to go tail of the tape from a skill set perspective, yeah, Joey's bigger. He gives you a little more run threat between the tackles. He's probably going to be more durable, which you're probably going to need with a young quarterback. They're going to take some hits. They're not going to know exactly what protection to get to or where a blitz is coming from or when to get rid of the ball. Those things come with time and experience. But I think Bo Nix is a little bit faster at straight line speed. I think he's a little, I think he's more quick and I think he's more elusive. I don't think from an arm strength perspective there's a big difference. I think Gatewood's arm is a little stronger. I think Nix is a little more accurate. I think Gatewood probably throws a little bit of a better ball more of the time. But to me, it comes down to going back to that experience. What what can replace that? And my answer to that would be intangibles. And when you think of a guy who whose dad wore the same number, playing the same position at the same school, he's been he's been groomed, coached, raised to be a quarterback every day in his own house. Not when he's been on the practice field. Every day of his life. So if there's ever a kid who's genetically prepared to take over as a freshman quarterback in the SEC. I mean, Bo Nix would kind of be that guy. He's competed at the Elite 11, the opening Under Armour All-American game. He played really high-quality high school football. So competitively, he's been against elite athletes. Not what he's going to see every week in the SEC, but good athletes. And I just think having that voice at home to be able to talk to every day, to bounce things off of, will probably end up being the difference. I think Gatewood will be the guy early. And I think at some point in time, Bo Nix probably takes that thing over. So, three more rapid-fire questions. What does Keyshawn Vaughn mean to Vanderbilt? Of course, he's on the Doak uh, Walker Award watch list, among many other things. Uh, what what does he bring to the table for Vanderbilt? A lot. It's just I think he brings a lot because he he's he's a top-five running back in the league, probably a top-three running back in the league. He can catch the ball out of the backfield, so he helps spread the defense out a little bit more. And the offensive line wasn't great last year. I don't think it's going to be great this year. And he's a guy that can still find productive yards and still give you explosive plays. So the good news for him is they have Pinkney at tight end and Lipscomb at receiver. That should draw some of the attention away from him. Um, but he means a ton to that football team. I mean, he he will be a big reason that they're bowl eligible this year. Alabama is a, is a place that a lot of young guys have to wait to come in and, um, and get their reps and, and get their starting time. But another place now is Georgia. And uh, with Riley Ridley, Miko Godwin, Terry, uh, excuse me, Miko Godwin and Terry Godwin, who is uh, who's them gone at wide receiver? Who's stepping up 
forward the Bulldogs. I think well, the first thing that I would look at is Swift can catch the ball out of the backfield. Charlie Werner at tight end can be a really valuable resource for them. And then you got some young guys like George Pickens here from Hoover as a kid who I think can go out there and be an immediate impact guy. But that's, I mean, that's the biggest position of concern. You look at who can generate a pass rush in one-on-one situations on their defensive line, and then what receivers can win one-on-one battles and help their quarterback out, which that may not be as big of a deal because that offensive line and those running backs are going to be that good. And you got a smart quarterback that at least with inexperienced receivers knows where to put the football and where and when to deliver the football. So I think with Jake Fromm and that offensive line and the backs that they have, it, it may not be as big of a problem as some people want to believe, but I think George Pickens is probably going to surprise some folks. But Swift and Werner out of the backfield and at tight end can also help sort of carry some of that load. And then lastly, who's in your playoff? Got to ask. So who, who are your four? And then do you have a swing? Man, I, have a, I don't think I've actually done all four yet. Um, Where are we going? It's, Al, it's <laughs> Alabama. It's Alabama. Clemson. I'll tell you the teams that I'm deciding between. Right. Um, today, I'd probably say Oklahoma's in. Uh, I think just having that experience with Jay was going to be huge. And then their specialty positions in the backfield and CD Lamb at receiver and Capitara tight end. They're going to be really good again on offense. And the defense, if they take with Alex Greens, if they take a small step, that may be the difference. I do think the Big 12 top to bottom is going to be a better conference this year. Um, I mean, I, I, I think about and talk about Oregon and Utah a lot. I think if Oregon gets Auburn, they have a really good chance. I'd probably go – I think I think Mich- – I don't – there's just something about Michigan that I can't allow myself to put them in. And I don't know if Ohio State's going to be that good just yet. Because I think the middle of the Big Ten is as good as it's been in about six or seven years. Like, I think Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, like those teams that nobody really talks about are going to be better than people believe this year. Um, so if it's if it was today, Alabama, Clemson, and then probably Oklahoma, Utah. Utah. Yeah. Okay. There it is. Great, great D-line. Good. Thousand-yard rusher back. Quarterback coming back. But that could change tomorrow, so that's not going to be okay. – That's not okay. my official. On the, uh, the August – what is it, August 12th? Yeah, it's still early here. Still early. we got camp work. injuries that could happen, transfers, so we're going to wait. We're 19 days away from Alabama and Auburn, 12 days away from the official season. Cole, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks the for having me. really appreciate it. Yep. So Alabama, Clemson, Utah, and Oklahoma, you heard it from Cole Kublik. Obviously, this is preseason, and there are a lot of things that could happen. As we know, specifically from Alabama, injuries in preseason camp, stuff like that. So we don't really know how the season's going to shape out. I'm really interested and excited for that Auburn-Oregon game week one. That's going to tell a lot, especially about that Oregon team uh, and a big Pac-12 SEC matchup there. So that's coming up. Thanks again to Cole for joining the podcast. Really hope you guys enjoyed it. Once again, please tweet me at WM underscore Galloway with any feedback you have on the podcast. Follow me. Follow Cole at Cole Kublik. And I really enjoyed that conversation. Very insightful on just kind of how he started his football career and how he went from Homewood to Auburn. And then uh, really his broadcasting career stood out to me because he's kind of been all over the map. Um, And obviously doing what he does now is big time. So thank you to Cole for that time and really appreciate that. 
looking at a couple more topics here on the Galloway Podcast before we send you on your way. Thanks for tuning in, and I really hope you've enjoyed this so far. Uh, A couple things that have been happening that we didn't mention before the Cole Kublik interview. Uh, Mac Wilson had two interceptions in his first preseason game versus the Redskins. That was big because he was a fifth-round draft pick, and a lot of people really didn't know if he should have left early. And then he's really kind of showing up um, in the preseason for the Browns, and so that's been exciting to watch Mac Wilson have success at the next level. The Braves' bullpen is – is absent, much like uh, many people from their college classes when it comes to Fridays in the fall. I mean, the Braves' bullpen is just not there. It's, it's I don't know what's happening. They're giving up way too many runs. It's awful to watch. I mean, it's it's a train wreck. You, you, you don't want to watch it, but you end up watching it thinking that something will change. Nothing has changed. There has been change, excuse me, but it hasn't been good. Uh, the Braves' bullpen is struggling, and I am struggling to watch it. Alabama Athletics is underway. The 2019-2020 Alabama Athletics season kicked off uh, yesterday when the Alabama soccer team defeated the UCF Knights by a field goal. The Crimson Tide won 3-0 to zero in an exhibition match over the Knights. That was exciting. We're Uh, anticipating a lot of big things from Alabama Athletics this year, so excited to see what is in store there. Uh, About a week and a half ago, Colin Kaepernick made a workout video and put it on Twitter as a free agent saying he's ready to get back in the NFL. Uh, I thought it was kind of stupid because I could make a video of me at the gym and say, oh, here's me working out. You know, I'm going to go walk on the Alabama basketball team. Neither of those things will happen, I promise you. But what – what good is that? Like, what good does that workout video do him? Like, oh, okay, you know, maybe now the Bills are going to go sign Colin Kaepernick because he made a workout video. Okay, well, that's dumb. I mean, that just all all free agents work out. And I don't know, that just really bothered me because Colin Kaepernick working out, oh, great. You know, no, it's, it's, it's that's stupid. That's so stupid. <coughs> Anyways, moving on from those shenanigans couple Twitter questions. My pick to win the East uh, in the SEC from Jack Klein. I've got Georgia, as do probably 95% of people. Uh, really enjoyed what Cole had to say about Missouri. And uh, watch out for Missouri. Don't sleep on Florida either. Um, I think those three teams will be knocking down the door uh, to get that SEC East title, Georgia, Florida, and Missouri. But I think that Georgia is going to take the trophy there in the East and faced Alabama in Atlanta come early December. Is Conference USA uh, UABs to lose? Yeah, absolutely. I expect the Blazers to repeat. That'll be an exciting time um, in Birmingham for Blazer Nation, and I expect they can go back-to-back in Conference USA. So this wraps up another great episode of the Galloway Podcast. I want to remind all of you to subscribe to the podcast either on SoundCloud, now on Spotify. So if you're a Spotify user as well, please listen on Spotify. Excited that the podcast is up on there. Thank you so much for listening, taking time out of your day to hearing what I have to say. Um, And of course, mainly hearing what Cole has to say Really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks to Cole again for his time, and thank you to list for listening. And uh, if you have any suggestions, comments, questions, concerns about this podcast, past podcasts, or ideas for future podcasts, please reach out to me and let me know. I'd be more than happy to hear those ideas. This is the Galloway Podcast on August 12th.
the Galloway Podcast, where there's the right way, there's the wrong way, and there's the Galloway. I'm free.